encourage you to grab a Bible and go to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. It's probably, uh, you don't have a Bible, it's probably a red one right in front of you in the seat back. Uh, the passage is also in the bulletin as well as on the screen. So as most of you know, if you're just joining us, we've been kind of working through the book of Acts. We're kind of getting to the end here. We'll spend another month in it and we'll be done. So Acts is written by a guy named Luke. It's kind of like a um, sort of a two-volume set. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, which kind of teaches us about who Jesus is and what he's done. And then we, he also wrote the book of Acts, which kind of shows the continued works of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And so today we're looking at Acts chapter 19. This is, um, we're kind of jumping toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey. And he's kind of uh, spent about two to three years in Ephesus. And uh, just like we've seen a lot in cities that he goes to, he preaches the gospel in the synagogues, in the marketplaces, in the homes. We have a lot of people that believe and then you also have opposition. And so we're going to kind of take a look at one of those pieces where there's some opposition that's going on uh, within Ephesus. So pretty neat little story. Uh, I've enjoyed kind of, un, you know, being in this all week. And hopefully over the next 40 minutes, you'll enjoy it too. So if not, then that's okay. You don't have to. <laughs> so, but uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Let's stand together in honor of reading God's word. So we're jumping in the middle of this chapter, starting in verse 23 and reading down to the end. So hear the word of the Lord. And about that time, there rose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them all together along with the workmen and related trades and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in particularly the whole province of Asia. He says that the man-made gods are no gods at all. Now, there is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar and the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus. There we go. Yes, Aristarchus, uh, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia and rushed as one into the theater. And Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. That's so funny. All right. Uh, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew... They all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Then the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since there are, these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed the temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. There are, there are pro-councils. They can press charges. 
If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I just um, just thank you for, for humor. <laughs> thank you for how your word, Lord, the word of God addresses all kinds of emotions in our life, Lord, from laughter to sorrow to difficulty to even sometimes confusion. And so once again, like I pray every Sunday for our body and for myself, may your spirit come, may open up our eyes and the ears of our hearts so that we can understand and see what you have for us this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this um, movement of God, this mission of God that we've been trying to kind of look at through the book of Acts carries kind of uh, both these ideas. It's a rescue mission and it's a reality mission. So it's not either or, it's both. It's a rescue mission and it's a reality mission. The rescue mission, we kind of saying just a few minutes ago, it has as, as aim that Jesus has come to save us ultimately from the wrath of God. Or another translation would be from the judgment that's going to come. So it's a rescue mission in the sense that Jesus has brought salvation so that we can be saved from the judgment that is going to come. The best Verse to sort of capture this is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, when it says this, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but what will he do? But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And so, This verse then applies, implies that those who are not waiting for him, aka those who are not in Christ, will face judgment. They will face the rightful wrath of God against the sins of humanity. I get it. That's not a great way to start the sermon. It's not a great way to invite people in. All right, and I, I hear that, but just kind of kind of bear with me. And so if your little inner lawyer is kind of rising up and got all kinds of objections to get this, I, I get it. And we can have a further conversation about this if you want to. But here's my encouragement for you. My encouragement for you is just, just to be curious. Why do we want justice? Like we, we long for wrongs to be made right. And so when someone cuts you off in traffic, your natural response is not grace, right? It's not, ah, it's okay. Love you, buddy, right? Your natural response is, I want justice. And usually that justice is inflicted not by a wave, but another finger, right? You know what I'm saying? And so I would make an argument that that's the image of God in your life that's actually pointing to an end where there will be a judgment where God will make all wrongs right. And the good news is that Jesus has come to save you from that judgment by taking on your judgment in full, if you will believe and receive him. So that's the rescue mission aspect. And we've seen this all throughout Acts. Like 
Paul's been about this rescue mission, preaching this message of salvation that you through Jesus can be saved from the judgment that is going to come. But it's not just a rescue mission, it's also a reality mission. Now, one of the things that, that made the, the people of God in the Old Testament so distinct is that they only worshiped one God, which was very rare in this time. In this time, most cultures and society worshiped a pantheon of gods, many gods. And what set the nation of Israel apart from all the other nations was that there was one God and one God only that demanded their allegiance and worship. And this is expressed all throughout the Old Testament, but man, we can see it so beautifully in Psalm 96. Now, I'm not gonna read the whole Psalm, but in the middle of that Psalm, this Psalmist says, here is the message that you declare to the nations. He says this in verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And that message, I would argue, is a reality message, that there is no other God but God. And then there is also a connection from Psalm 96 to the New Testament. If you go all the way to Matthew chapter 28, the very last words that Jesus gives to his disciples is basically what Psalm 96 is saying. So he says this in verse 18, which I would argue is the most important verse in the Great Commission, not verse 19. Verse 18 says this. Then Jesus came to the disciples and said this, all authority in heaven. Translation, I reign. I am God. I am Lord over all. That's, that's what he means here. He's basically saying Psalm 96. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go. If I'm not Lord of all, then you have no reason to go, right? It's like, what are you doing? We don't need another God. No, we want the God of all gods to be worshiped and given allegiance to. So I am that God. I am the one who reigns all over all of history. It's by the word of my mouth that the world is held together and that the sun rises and that the sun sets. And so the message is go and tell everyone of that reality. And we see this specifically here in Acts chapter 19. So the message that Paul is speaking is not just a message of rescue. Yes, it is. Yes, he's, Jesus has come to save us from the judgment that is coming at the end. But it's also a reality message, it's also a reality mission in the sense that there is one God. And if that is true, then what we see here in Acts 19 makes sense. Otherwise, we're going, what's going on here, right? But if Jesus reigns, and this is the message that Paul is preaching, then what unfolds here in the last half of Acts chapter 19 absolutely makes sense. Let me show you this. All right, let me show you this. Look at verse, verse 23. Let's kind of walk a little bit back through the story so we can kind of catch this, um, this sort of angle of this reality message that's going on in this chapter. Verse 23. So about that time, there arose a, a great disturbance about the way. And the way is just kind of a Luke's way of describing Christianity. So he's just talking about Christians, those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. And so he called together kind of a union, all right, with all these guys, along with worksmen and related trades, and said this, men, 
you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. And he says, here's the the reality message. This is what he's saying, that man-made gods are no gods at all. So there's a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshiped throughout the whole entire province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And all you want to say there is wham, 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 poor little Demetrius. You know, let's get him a little pacifier and a bottle to suck on, right? Well, maybe that's kind of what I want to say to it. But here's, here's what's going on. Sometimes we have a tendency that whenever there's a city that's mentioned in the Bible, we kind of sanitize it, right? We, we kind of think really good of, oh, I must not have been that really bad. I'm telling you, Ephesus was a wicked city. Like, I, do the research. Ephesus would make Vegas look like a church retreat area, right? I'm telling you, that's how dark and wicked and demonic and the sexual promiscuity that was so pervasive in the city. I mean, guys, I I can't even do words justice for us to see how dark this city was that Paul was entering into and preaching this reality message that Jesus is Lord. And in this city, he kind of talks about this, Demetrius does here, that there's a, this massive temple uh, of Artemis, which is a, a Greek or, or a goddess here that, that was looked to to bring prosperity, that was looked to to bring like protection and people would worship her and, and bow down to her. This, this uh, temple was massive. They say it was like at least a, a football and football you know, field in length. It was just huge. It's one of the largest temples in the world this time. It was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. I mean, it's, it's a massive structure and it brought a lot of money into Ephesus because tons of people from the entire Roman Empire would go and travel, not just to kind of like look at it as like a, you know, a sightseeing thing, but they went there to worship. But they genuinely believed that this was the, the goddess that can bring prosperity that I'm lacking my life or protection that I'm lacking my life. They would they would go and worship her, and it brought a massive amount of money to the, to the city of Ephesus. And so what we see here is that what is happening is that Demetrius owns kind of a, 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 a you know, chain of stores where they sold these little silver shrines, so to speak. So they, he was kind of like overseeing all these chains of stores that were selling these little shrines. And what is happening here is that the message of Paul is spreading widely and it's taking root and power in people's lives so much so that it's threatening that this business is gonna be out. Like it's, it's threatening to put these guys out of business. And Demetrius is freaking out. It's like, I, I can't have that. I'm, I'm wealthy because of this. And so because of the message of Paul, these people are not buying these little gods anymore. And so he's got to gather his, his peeps and say, look, we got, to, we got to do something about this. And so in the middle there, you see he gets this kind of the crowd into some kind of crazy frenzy here. They're, they crowd into this amphitheater, which can seat close to twenty to 25,000 people, kind of think Yum Center. And they are in there in mass confusion. Like we said there, half of them have no idea what's going on. But there's like, hey, it's a crowd. Amen, right? So, but look, look what happens here. Pick up in verse uh, 32. So the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. 
Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense to the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, one who worshiped one God, all right, that's Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so guys, look, absolute chaos is going on in here. We read also that that some companions and friends tell Paul not to go in here, even though he kind of wanted to. It's like, look, there's there's no reason for you to do this. It's not wise for you to step in there. Nothing's gonna be productive by you stepping into this chaotic, crazy crowd. And then finally, kind of a, uh, more of like a magistrate, sort of a city official steps in here and he gets to calm the crowd down and actually eventually dismisses them. Now, I'm gonna read this, but I, there's, there's a little detail here that we're gonna come back to, but I want you to pay attention because I think Luke puts this de- detail in here for a reason. But look what happens in verse 35. So the city clerk quieted the crowd down and, and he said this, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. Verse 37, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples, here's the details, nor blasphemed our goddess. These guys haven't gone in the temple and stole the little silver idols and burnt them, right? Wasn't like a mission like that, right? Nor, nor based on this city official, nor have they blasphemed our goddess. I'll come back to that. That's an important little detail that Luke adds for us. And then he tells them to take them to court. And then in the verse 41, after he said this, he kind of dismissed the assembly. And honestly, it's a little anticlimactic in it. <laughs> it's like, it's, you kind of want Paul to jump in there and do like a gospel pipe bomb or something like that, right? Uh, like, man, this is how you should have ended this story. But God's the one that does the fruit, right? Not us. We just need to be, be faithful. But look, follow, that's just my little side note. Follow my train of thought here. Follow what I'm trying to say here. So Paul spends two to three years in Ephesus. He is preaching, he's teaching, he's showing who Jesus is and what he's done. He's done this in Jewish synagogues. He's done this in homes. He has done this in the marketplace. And he's preaching a message that in essence says this, that he is Lord, that he is King, that he is the one that reigns. Therefore, there are no other gods. And so people are hearing this message, receiving this message, the spirit of God is working in their lives. And then all of a sudden it begins to affect all areas of their life, including what they buy and don't buy. And you see this in Acts chapter 19, even if we skip up a few verses, I didn't read this and this is pretty cool stuff that's going on here. But if you skip up a few verses in 18 and 19, you see a group of wizards who believe in the message of Jesus that he is Lord and they go and burn all their wizard books. I mean, look what happens here. It's awesome, crazy stuff. This is the effect and the impact of this message in their life. Verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to about 50,000 
drachmas. That's what I'm going for, all right? It may not be drachmas, but that's what I'm going for. 50,000 drachmas. Now look, look, here's the deal. This is not like they're coming together and burning their Harry Potter books, all right? That's not, that's not this is not, you know, and, and no, you might've been like me. There's a season in my life where I burn all my secular CDs. I kind of wish I could get those back, but I did that several years ago. That's, that's not what's going on here. These are a group of magicians who are, who are, who are in the demonic to where they're using these spells for guidance and protection. And when they find out that Jesus is Lord, then the natural response to that message is to take all their books, which in our day, it's $4 million worth. A drachma is a day's wage in this time. They had $50,000 worth of them. $4 million. Jesus is Lord. These are not it makes sense for me to burn $4 million. If Jesus is Lord, that makes sense. We see it here where, man, the message of Paul, Jesus is having such an impact. We also see that these people stop buying these little silver shrines so much so that they're about to put out people that are in business of selling them. So this is not just one dude or one girl. This is a whole host of people who have said, no, no, we're not buying these. Why? Because she's not God. Jesus is. It's reality. Now, here's my point. Here's kind of what I'm trying to get after. Paul's message to the people in Ephesus is not burn your books. You follow me? Paul's message when he rolls into Ephesus for two to three years is not, hey, stop buying these little idols. Go burn your your witchcraft books. No, the message of Jesus was at the lips of Paul and basically what he was doing is what we find in Psalm 96. Jesus reigns. That's what his message was, and that's all. And when these people began to receive this message and get down in their own hearts and lives, what came as a natural response to that? To go burn $4 million worth of books and to stop buying these little silver idols. Paul's message was not burn the books, stop buying idols. His message was Jesus, period. And that message had such an impact on their lives that what they did made sense to them. If this is true, then it makes sense for me to burn this. If this is true, it makes sense for me to stop buying these little silver shrines. Our boys, our, um, our little ones, our eight and 10-year-old are, are playing basketball in, in a little wide lead. So our youngest is in the seven and eight-year-old league and our, and our next one is in the nine and 10-year-old league. Any, anybody gone and, and watched basketball games with, a, with watching seven to 10-year-olds, right? Anybody done that? Right, if you haven't and you want joy, you need to go do that, all right? Because if you, if you, um, if you have any knowledge about basketball, all right, and this doesn't infer in my kids because my kids are great because I'm, I'm their dad, but, but if you have any knowledge of basketball, while you're watching this game, the question that comes to your mind all the time is why, right? Why 
Did you do that? That's what you want to scream at these kids. And sometimes I do, even though I want to try to keep it in here. It's like, why? It, the things that they do absolutely do not make sense. I mean, you just have like a very nominal knowledge of basketball and you would know that when you get the ball underneath the basket and you're two feet away, you should shoot the ball. It's a layup. But instead, what do they do? They dribble go all the way out here about 20 feet away and I'm going to shoot from there, right? It's like, why? That doesn't make sense. Like shoot the layup for crying out loud. I mean, this happened yesterday. They're, they're taking the ball out of bounds and there's a kid right there, wide open. I mean, there's nobody on him. I mean, I'm, I'm not lying. They're from here, that chair. Wide open, no one here, wide open. The kid wants to get a pass to someone else. He throws it over top of his head to the kid that's guarded by like three people. And the whole time I'm going, just make the easy pass. He's right there, right? It's like, they don't do anything that absolutely makes sense. But here's like, the, you know, bring about fairness. Here's the reality. The reason why they do so much that doesn't make sense is that they don't have a full understanding of the game of basketball, right? I mean, I've had these conversations with my two little ones. Like they will, they will argue with you on why I didn't pass the ball to the dude was open and try to get it over there, right? In their minds, it kind of makes sense, right? But as they get an understanding of the game of basketball, they begin to see, wow, well, it makes sense for me to shoot the two-footer, not dribble out and shoot the 15-footer, right? It makes sense for me to make the easy pass, not the pass over there where the guy's all guarded. Bear with me. I'm making a massive leap here, all right? All right, so, so kind of get your minds, all right? But here's the leap. We will never see that what is in my right hand that I'm trusting in for security, joy, comfort, identity, whatever it is, you will never see this until Jesus gives you the capacity to see it. And that's what the prophet Isaiah is after in chapter 44, when he kind of unpacks this this absurdity of idolatry. Like why in the world are you bowing down to a block of wood? Why are you bowing down to a silver shrine in the, you know, in the, the replication of, Ar, you know, the goddess Artemis? Why are you doing this? And it's interesting what he says here because he kind of leaves you with a question without an answer. And I think the answer is found here in Acts 19, but I want to read you this section of scripture. Look what he says here in verse 19. Isaiah says this, no one, No one stops to think. No one. And so that that all of us are on the same page, no one means you and I, or you and me, however you're supposed to say that, right? No one means everybody in this room. Sometimes we have a tendency to read no one and we think of someone else, right? That no one's not me. That's, That's that person. No, no one does this. And reasons or or knowledge or understand to say half of it I use for fuel and I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? So the question that is left here that's not answered, then how can I see? 
How can I get to a place where I understand that what I'm holding on to in my right hand is a lie? Because if I could see that it's a lie, then it would make sense for me to let it go. And the only way that you can see that it's a lie is what we see here in Acts chapter 19, as well as the entire book of Acts, is when you hear the message of Jesus that he is Lord of all and you repent and believe in him, the spirit of God comes in your life and he begins to open the eyes of the heart so that you can see the lie in your right hand. And when you see that it's a lie, it's gonna fail you, then the natural response to that is to let it go. It just makes sense. This is not some kind of extraordinary varsity level response that we see here in Acts chapter 19. For some of us in this room, you look at burning $4 million and go, man, that's really dumb. I hear you. But if you understand the message, the reality message that Jesus is Lord and there are no other gods, And if I'm trying to ascribe value and worth to whatever these books do for me, then it makes sense. Jesus has come and opened the eyes of these sorcerers' hearts to where they can see in their right hand that this is a lie. So why do I want to keep holding on to that? It's going to fail me. It only makes sense to let this go. It makes sense not to go into stores and buy these little silver shrines and bow down to them like they're going to give us any kind of protection. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. He's the king of the universe. He's the God above all gods. And when Jesus comes in, he opens the eyes of my heart. He helps me see that the lie in my right hand. And guess what I do? I do what makes sense. I let it go. I let it go. That's why. That's why Paul didn't come preaching against the goddess of Artemis. I mean, even the city official goes, look, they haven't blasphemed our God. So that makes me think he didn't come on the scene going, this is dumb, this is stupid, this is no God. No, he came on the scene going, here's Jesus. Here is who Jesus is. Here's the beauty, the wonder, the goodness of Jesus. That's his message. And when they received that, there was a natural overflow of a response that led to what we see in Acts chapter 19. You follow me? You follow what I'm trying to say here? So look, so what do we do with this? Look, I think there's a lot, all right? But I got five minutes, all right? So I can't go through all, or maybe more like 10. But, but here, I think there are two, all right? Two primary things that kind of, um, when we think about this reality message, this message of Jesus as Lord and how it brings about impact, I think it informs us on a couple levels here. So one is this, it informs us on what it means to be a Christian. It informs us on what it means to be a Christian. Now, the danger in this, in our culture, and not just our, I'm more talking about like our area, grew up in this area, spent most of my life here. This is a very churched area, very churched. When you go to any coffee shop in this area, you will see 
tons of people having Bible studies, which I'm like, I'm not saying that's bad. It's just the reality that we live in. And what happens sometimes in a church area is that the gospel, the message of Jesus gets kind of like reduced down to this idea that if I get Jesus, basically receiving Jesus is my get out of hell free card. And that's it. That's a good deal. You want to get out of hell? You want to get, get away from the judgment that's coming? Trust Jesus. I'm in that. Done. Sign me up, right? And some of us have grown up with that message and that's all you've learned. That's it. That you think the gospel is just a get out of hell free card. Now hear me. Yes, it is, right? I'm not, <laughs> hallelujah. God came and took my judgment so that I won't have to face the judgment later. Thank God for that. So yes, sir, we believe that and I'll preach that. That's the whole mission element of like, yeah, it's, it's salvation, right? But it's not just a rescue mission, it's a reality mission. And the other reality mission is this, is that he is Lord, that the gospel also comes not only to get you out of hell, but look, it comes in you and starts to order your loves rightly so that you worship and love what is worthy of worshiping and loving, and that is Jesus. Look, I wouldn't make an argument because I see it in my own life. Where things are a train wreck in my life is because my loves are out of order. Whenever I start loving my spouse more than I love Jesus, I'm crushing my marriage. Whenever I start loving my children more than I love Jesus, I'm crushing my children. Whenever I love golf or whatever, UK basketball or UFL basketball or any of these ones, whenever I love them more than I love Jesus, I lose all the joy out of that. Are you following me? So the, the beauty of the gospel is that it not only saves us from hell, but it comes in and begins to do this work in us to where our loves are ordered rightly to where we love and worship Jesus. And then therefore, when that is happening, then I can enjoy the gifts that he's given to me because I'm not trying to get something out of them that they were never created to give me. Only Jesus can do that. So what it means to be a Christian is not just get out of hell. No, what it means to be Christian is also to return to God and to love and cherish and worship him as God. That's what it means to be a Christian. This message of reality here that Jesus is Lord informs that. Secondly, it is what God uses to mature us as Christians. So not only this reality message that Jesus is Lord helps inform us of what it means to be a Christian. It also helps inform us on what it means to mature as a Christian. This is what I mean. Maturing as a follower of Jesus Christ happens not by identifying my idols, but by informing my mind and my heart on who Jesus is. I'll say it again. This is... Very important for you to hear. Maturing as a follower of Jesus Christ is not by identifying my idols. It's not. Maturing as a follower of Jesus Christ is by informing my mind and my heart on who Jesus is. 
period. I mean, guys, that's the first thing I noticed when I read through this passage earlier this week. The very first thing I noticed was that Paul did not come preaching a message that says, stop doing this and start burning those. He came and preached a message about Jesus, period. And so when I hear people say that maturing as a follower of Jesus Christ means I need to go and find my idol and then repent and confess to that idol and then put Jesus in his place, I'm going like, what do you mean? And what does that look like? And if John Calvin is right when he says the human heart is an idol factory, which basically means, dude, I'm, I'm pumping them out, right? It's just happening. I'm a, I'm a little idol factory. So if that's true, then me going and finding my idol sounds exhausting. Like I'm worn out just talking about it. Instead, let me give you another option. What if you brought to the center of your affections and your mind what is central to Christianity, and that is Jesus? And you marinated your life and your mind and heart, and who is Jesus? What has he done? Then I would guarantee you that over time, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened for you to see all the little things that you got in your right hand. I don't have to go identify those. Jesus will. And then it just makes sense, doesn't it? To let that go. Because it's going to fail me. It's a lie. So, a quick example of this. Um, the guys are going through um, John's kind of I am statements. So in the book of John, there's seven I am statements. We're just kind of looking at five of them. And so the I am statements are, are a beautiful place for, a, if you're wondering where to start, it's a beautiful place for you to start, kind of like, okay, who is Jesus? Because these I am statements are making a declaration about who Jesus is. He's making a declaration about himself. And not only is it making a declaration about who Jesus is, it's also making a declaration about humanity and then it's also inviting humanity in. So these I am statements, a declaration about Jesus, also a declaration about humanity, and then there's always an invitation in these I am statements. So my week was the bread of life, all right? So just think about this with me. In John chapter six, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That is a truth about Jesus. And so if you took time to marinate, think, and reflect upon what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Here's what I think you would eventually land on. It means this, that Jesus sustains me. In this time, bread was necessary for the sustaining of human life. Now, you know, we've got all kinds of ways of fabricating that now and GMOs and GPPOs or whatever we got going on here. So, but it's still, right? Bread is still in essence, necessary for sustaining life. Secondly, bread satisfies. Now, even if you're on Whole30 or you got gluten issues, you can still talk with me here, right? Bread is wonderful, right? There, I'm telling you, there's nothing like a big old fat homemade biscuit with whatever you love on it, right? Jelly, 
peppers. I don't know. I, I like jelly and honey. I'm telling you what, there is nothing like that. I mean, that is, woohoo, amazing. Like, I'm just thinking about it right now. I'd love to have a big old biscuit right now, right? Take that and allow that to inform you about who Jesus is, that he sustains you, that he satisfies you, that he's beautiful. There's no one like him. Because that's a means of maturing in all your other stuff that we got going on, all these little idols we're producing nonstop. Man, they will. They will fall away. So not only declare something about humanity, about him, but also declare something about humanity. And what does it declare about humanity is that you got longings. Like you're made with longings. And I would argue the reason why you're made with longings is because you're made for Jesus. That longing is there in order to get you to Christ, who's the only one that can fully satisfy and shut those longings up. And the invitation of that is to come. That's it. Not go get your act clean up. Oh, stop sinning. Hey, deal with that idol. Get rid of that thing in your right hand. Oh, you love your clothes too much. You love golf too much. Oh, you love wildcats too much. Oh, you know, you love your job too much. You love your wife too much. Whatever it is, man, just throw something in there. Jesus is not saying go fix that. No, he's just saying come. Come. Get me in you. We'll take care of that stuff. I quote a lot of Tim Keller. You guys probably don't know it because I don't always tell you. Not that I'm trying to be deceptive or anything like that. I'm just, I just love the guy. I mean, he's really done a, the words that God's used through him has made a huge impact in my life. And one of my favorite quotes from him is this one here. It's not on the screen, um, but hopefully you can write it down or just think on it. He says this, Jesus is the only God whom when you obtain him will satisfy you and when you fail him, will forgive you. No other God would do that. If you fail any other God, he'll crush you. And you'll live with shame, guilt, and fear. Not Jesus. Jesus. 